edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks. Welcome. I'm Tom Malloy, and with us today is Ornia Flood. Ornia did a BA in Natural Sciences and Physics in Trinity College Dublin, and then she's worked in science communication for the rest of her career, first of all in the Science Gallery in the Walton Club here in Trinity, and now she works as the Engagement and Public Engagement Manager of the ILOFA Radio Telescope, which is based in Burr in County Offaly and linked to Trinity. So Anya, how did you become interested in astronomy? Um, well, I guess I started with studying physics in Trinity College in Dublin, um, and I, I did a general physics degree, so it was a bit of everything. And then, and I, I found it very fascinating. Obviously, some parts can be a bit tough and a bit tricky, but in general, kind of finding out more about how everything works, why it works as it does, what things are made of, all that sort of stuff. Really, really fascinating. Um, and then after my degree, I sort of um, honestly spent a while trying to decide what I wanted to do. And um, through taking time to figure all that out, I got into science communication, which people may not be familiar with, but it essentially means I talk about science. So with my background, I kind of bridge that gap. I'm able to talk to researchers and understand what they're talking about and then speak to people who may not have a scientific background as well and sort of bridge that gap. Uh, so I do things with science communication, including public engagement, education, working with schools and things like that. Um, and yeah, so I got into working with ILOFAR. I spent a few years before this working in different areas of science communication. I've worked in the Science Gallery in Trinity College in Dublin. Um, I've worked with Bright Club, which is a, a brilliant initiative. I definitely recommend people to check that out. It's a well, it's all online at the moment, but it's a evening event in a pub where you get to listen to comedians and scientists and the scientists trying to be funny, the comedians trying to be clever. Not just scientists, actually, researchers from all over, but a lot of scientists. Um, and yeah, I've, I've worked on the SciComm conference. Um, so yeah, lots of varied things. There's more in there as well, but kind of bouncing around here and there. Um, for the past few years, I've been working with ILOFAR specifically the Astrolands program. So it's the Astronomical Midlands, where we have this education and public engagement program talking all about the radio telescope that's located smack bang in the middle of Ireland, what that means for everybody, how Ireland now has like a very key role in this international organization and sort of bringing it to everybody um, and helping them appreciate what, what our role is in that. There's always a kind of a perception, I suppose, that astronomers among, are among the most abstract thinkers in science, along with perhaps quantum physicists and one or two other people. Is that the way? I mean, what, what kind of a person is good at astronomy in your experience? Oh, well, I suppose it ranges. There can be many different types of people because there's many different aspects to astronomy. So when you talk to astrophysicists who study information coming in from telescopes, especially something like a radio telescope, it's a lot of data analysis. So they have to write computer programs to analyze the data, to make sense of it. So this computer programming, um, which obviously is a widely transferable skill. So you do have to be logical, but in as in all types of science, there is creativity required because you have to be able to work around problems, think of novel solutions to brand new problems that people haven't dealt with before, or think of alternative ways of looking at things and analyzing things. So I'd say, not, not to dodge the question, but many different types of people. And then obviously as well, you have the people who build the telescopes, 
which would be, suppose, more engineering, but very important to astronomy, that you need your physical telescope in order to actually do your astronomy. And of course, there's many different types of telescopes. So there's uh, telescopes in space, there's optical telescopes that we look through, there's radio telescopes like the one here in Burr, which is just an array of antenna. So you don't look through it, you don't get pictures from it, you get data, lots and lots of data that you then turn into graphs or turn into uh, like a map of the sky from that information. Burr is a, is, is a useful starting point, isn't it, to think about astronomy, because I suppose there are historic reasons why why Ireland's astronomical kind of headquarters is in Burr, and that's that uh, an aristocrat from the 19th century built what was then the world's largest telescope. And since then, you know, he, he 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 had a telescope that was the largest telescope for 30 or 40 years. And then it was 70 since, years, actually. 70 years, right. It was the largest telescope in the world for over 70 years, from the 1840s right up until 1917. The largest but now the, 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 the telescope there, which is, is not kind of how most people imagine telescopes, it's neither kind of a tubular thing pointed at the skies, nor is it one of those big kind of upturned saucers that, that you often see in, in films and programs. It's It's more like a a load of solar panels, really, about the size of a football pitch. And I suppose the important thing is it, it's linked to, what, around 40 or 50 other telescopes around Europe, isn't it? So it's it's a much more collaborative exercise these days, astronomy, than, than it used to be. Is that fair to say? Oh, 100%. So even if you compare nowadays, not just astronomy, but all types of space and space exploration and space science, if you compare that to, say, the 1960s with the space race, it was very much so one country versus another, both trying to be first. Whereas now, all things to do with space astronomy are huge international collaborations, which really is the best way to do it. We can achieve so much more together. Even looking at the International Space Station, which is this, you know, spaceship that orbits the Earth that people live on, it is an international collaboration. People from many nationalities go there and no one country would be able to have something to that magnitude. So we really are kind of codependent, but in a great way because we get so much more out of it by working together. And when it comes to LOFAR, the radio telescope, like what we have in Burr, like you said, it's not what you would imagine a telescope to look like. It's not the one you look through. It's And even if you say, oh, it's a radio telescope, it's not even one of those really cool looking big radio dishes. It, um, you might be very disappointed when you see it first, but when you see what it can achieve, then it becomes very impressive. It's uh, I like to say it looks like sticks and then these black plastic things that do look somewhat like solar panels, but uh, they are all antennas. They're sort of like the radio antenna you might have on your car, but when we put a bunch of them all together, that's when it becomes really powerful. So instead of one solid dish, we've got lots of small antenna that are all linked up. Much, uh, much more cost effective to build, and it can be much more effective at certain frequencies. And then, like you say, this links up with telescopes just like that array all across Europe. And then because they're dotted across Europe, they can all link up as well in a similar way to the small antenna on the field all linking up. And we essentially get a big, what acts like one giant radio dish the size of Europe, which first of all would be pretty impossible to build, but no one country could do that by themselves. So that's why we link up with all these other countries around Europe. And what, what what is this project looking for? Or is that a kind of a, a stupid question? Is it that one one just kind of goes out and goes forth and 
Uh, ne- never is <laughs> Well, it, it could be. I mean, it might be that that that's the not the approach that astronomers take. Or uh, well, you know, there's many different groups and different projects that are using LOFAR. And right. some would be looking for specific things and others, like you say, are kind of just looking and seeing what's there. So we have a lot of solar physicists that work on the telescope based here in Ireland. The, the main group that work on it are solar physicists. So they look at the sun um, and they're basically looking for activity spots on the sun. The sun goes through phases of more and less activity. Um, obviously, day to day, yes, we see the sunshine. It gives us heat, it gives us light, but it actually has much stronger effects on the Earth as well. So if there's a big explosion on the surface of the sun, like a solar flare or a CME, which is a coronal mass ejection, which just looks like essentially if you uh, if you break down words in science, especially in astronomy, you can kind of understand exactly what it means. So the uh, the kind of outer layer surface of the sun is called the corona. And it's when a load of stuff gets spewed out of the corona is called a coronal mass ejection. Exactly. Like it, it explains itself what it is. Um, so when these things are directed towards Earth, they can have effects on Earth. Some really cool effects like the aurora and the northern lights and the southern lights, which is beautiful. But then also it can disrupt electrical equipment if it's really strong solar storm. Um, it can disrupt satellites that we have in space or obviously people on the International Space Station. They can be subjected to radiation. So it's important to study the sun, to learn about it, to understand what's happening so as we can predict and prepare against these events. Um, also, people using LOFAR look at pulsars, which are specific types of stars that are pretty far away. Um, but they're these very, very, very dense neutrino star, neutron stars, sorry, that rotate really fast and spew out radio light in and basically at their poles. And essentially, it's the effect like a lighthouse. We just see it beeping every once in a while as it comes around towards us. Um, and they all have very specific signatures, so we can use them to sort of help tell what location of space we're looking at or distances in space as well. They can be very effective. They were first discovered um, by an Irish woman from Armagh, Jocelyn, Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell-Brunel in Cambridge. Um, uh, so that, that was pretty spectacular. Um, and yeah, and people use it to study different planets in our solar system, uh, to just look out into the sky and see what we can see, kind of like what you said. And we also work with uh, the Breakthrough Listen Foundation with, on SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So looking for lots of different things at LoFAR. We can't let that last thing just pass un, unnoted. So you are you are looking for for life outside of the the solar system. What 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 does that search look for, look like? Is presumably is it kind of you're looking for some kind of radio waves or some kind of sign that somebody somewhere is trying to commute uh, communicate with us or or at least communicate with some somebody and that that we kind of intercept that communication or, or, or is it something completely different? Um, yeah, it's sort of like that. So it's, it's not something I work on directly, but um, like I say, we were linked with the Breakthrough Listen Foundation in the University of Berkeley in California, and they use LOFAR for this. And we also have people in Ireland who work with them as well. Um, so yeah, it's searching for, like, I guess a good way to explain it is back when pulsars were first discovered by Jocelyn Bell-Brunel. And it was this very steady, blip on the data right so usually you get like something's happening but it wouldn't be a uniform blip um where she saw this very uniform blip obviously took uh 
took things like initially thought maybe it was instrumental error. No, they saw it with a different instrument. But it was this very uniform, very uniformly spaced signal coming in. And kind of as a joke, but also thinking about what could cause this, she labeled it LGM1. And then the second one, she found LGM2 for little green men one, little green men two. <laughs> uh, because that would be an explanation of what is creating this uniform signal. Whereas then they realized there's, it's actually coming from lots of different sources and over time then realized it was this particular type of star, which is a pulsar. Um, so it, it wasn't any little green people coming towards us. Um, but so it's things like that, looking for signals that seem like they could have been created by an intelligent life form as opposed to just the effects of the universe. Tell me, I've always wondered about this and, and perhaps you don't know the answer, but we we send out messages into the solar system. So there's always a, a possibility that some kind of uh, hostile uh, alien might might detect the planet Earth from from uh, from our kind of various kind of emissions. Is there any kind of international agreement about uh, about this, you know, about not drawing attention to us or drawing attention to us? Is it kind of assumed, as you often hear, that any any alien life form that would be sophisticated enough to hear from us must be peaceful. You know, is there, is there a convention on this communication? Um, the short answer is I'm not sure. Um, Fair enough. Yes. Uh, the, the kind of international agreements of protecting Earth uh, from from something like that, as opposed to just from ourselves. Uh, but we, when talking about looking for extraterrestrial life, obviously people have a lot of different opinions um, and different kind of ways of looking at the, the probabilities and the possibilities. But essentially, if you think about it, we've really only understood something like radio technology for about 120 years or so. So if you and that's when we started essentially beaming out radio signals, TV signals, things like that and mm. out into the ether. Uh, so they have because they travel at the speed of light, their form of light. They have traveled, let, let's say 120 years for argument's sake, they have traveled 120 light years from us. In the grand scheme of looking at the universe, that's a tiny, tiny distance. So the aliens would have to be within that range to pick up our signal. So that makes it less likely that anyone or anything will find our what looks like an intelligent a radio signal being beamed out. Even something like the Voyager spacecrafts, which are the first, furthest human-made objects from the Earth, are not that far away. So they've exited our solar system, depending on where you define the line of the solar system. Um, but they haven't passed by the Oort cloud at the very outer edges of our solar system. They were launched in the 70s. They're the furthest things from the Earth. And they're still kind of just at the edge of our solar system. But we, we, we really don't need to worry about this. <laughs> what you're saying, it sounds pretty sensible. Yeah, but. essentially, there's there's many other things you could worry about before worrying about this. It's still something totally worth investigating and really yeah. fascinating and really interesting. But I wouldn't start worrying about these like Independence Day style aliens coming to take over the Earth. Okay, I'll sleep well tonight. Listen, you 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 mentioned Amar there when you were talking about Dame Jocelyn Bell and. Amar is probably, along with Burr, the other place on this island that that is kind of historically associated with astronomy. And indeed, there's a, a fantastic planetarium. And I used yeah. to be in a little astronomy club in school. And my 
and we all used to go up to Amara every year, and it was great, and I loved it. And it's a great spot there, the Armagh Observatory and Planetarium. They've got both the historical observatory and and the current observatory and the great planetarium site and everything. Beautiful. It's fantastic, isn't it? And it makes me kind of think that you know, there's a lot. You know, one of the most important things in astronomy is is kind of talking to children about it and talking to, to teenagers and, and youngsters. You you do a lot of that. What kind of things are available to um, to young people who are interested in astronomy? What oh, well, there's, there's lots. So, I mean, we, we run a program from, um, so we're based in Burn, County Offaly, and we run a program for schools and young people, as well as other programs for adults and things as well. But talking about the schools, obviously, at the moment, everything is online. So that's a lot of pros and cons. Obviously, it's it's not the same as being in a room and chatting with people, but it means that anybody can join from anywhere, which is a benefit. So we, for example, we've been running astro camps last summer and over the Easter, and we'll be running them again this summer. And they're for a range of ages, from ten all the way up to sixteen and eighteen. Um, and we kind of get them talking to. We bring in. Uh, researchers to talk to them about what they actually do and what it means and uh, then do different activities to explore creativity in science as well like some of the uh, newer spacecrafts being launched now the, the James Webb Space Telescope which will be launched soon and um, that has taken some inspiration from origami on how to properly unfurl in space and and essentially launch small and get be big when it gets to space because when it's a telescope you want it to be as big as it can be um which is so it kind of it's a small thing and then it unfolds yeah to to launch things to space obviously it takes a lot of energy to escape from the earth's atmosphere um and you want it to be as small and compact as possible to fit on top of a rocket but then when you're making a telescope, you want it to be as big as possible so it can capture more light uh, of, of different types. Um, so the idea is that it'll launch as this nice, neat little rectangular kind of cylindrical thing. And then when it gets up there, it releases, it, it unfurls this whole heat shield, which blocks out the sun's light and heat. And then the actual telescope uh, primary mirror itself also becomes bigger than it was when launched. And you can't really have it unfurling and getting caught or getting stuck and then being like, oh, we'll just go fix it because it's in space. So it has to be very reliably unfurling. So if students or or the teachers want to kind of sign up for these courses, how can they find them on the Internet? Do they what what should they Google to get to the right place? Mm. Our website is lofar.ie, that's L-O-F-A-R.ie. So our um, our summer astro camps will be up there shortly. We're just confirming the dates and people can book in for those. Uh, and then we run different events as well. So we often run evening events, um, something along the line. Well, actually, Pint of Science is coming up next week, um, which we're part of. It's a whole uh, international festival. But and the Irish team now, with everything being online, we're making a national effort as opposed to just small local events. So we're involved with one evening of that. It's running from Monday to Wednesday, the 17th to the 19th of June or May. Sorry, got mixed up what month we're in. Um, so we've got uh, somebody who works at LoFar talking in that. And these are evening events. And in normal times, they would be in a bar or something like that. But they're also perfectly accessible for kids, especially teenagers who have an interest in this. You know, there won't be any jargon or assuming that you've studied these topics in university level or anything like that. But what we really find with 
kids and teenagers and young people who are interested in space, in science, but space and astronomy in general, um, they are so interested in it. They eat it up and they watch all the TV programs, they read all the books they can find, and they know just so, so much about it. So they really value when they get to actually talk to somebody who researches this. Like we had people studying black holes, talking to the group there over Easter, and the researchers were thrown by the questions that the kids had. Kids from 10 years of age talking to them about black holes and they, they were stumped sometimes with the questions, which is great. Like we don't know everything in science. That's why we're still investigating and doing research. We don't know everything in science. That's why we're still investigating. That kind of brings us neatly on to just the other topic I'd, I'd like to explore with you a little bit, which is science communication. And the whole, the kind of the need for science communication, it's, it's a relatively kind of new new area, it seems to me. And, and the, the, the problem, though, the mismatch, the inability of science to communicate with the public as a whole or the inability of the public to understand scientific developments, depending on what way you want to kind of uh, phrase it, has been going on for a long time. Obviously, C.P. Snow wrote a lot of novels about this and, and discussed it back in the 1920s and 1930s, this great this great divide and, and the reality, perhaps, that it's, it's more or less unheard of not to know what Hamlet is, but many people don't know what the, the second law of thermodynamics is. And, and you can easily argue that the latter is at least as important as the former. What What is... What is preventing this kind of, uh, what's creating this gulf, do you think, between the, the public and the scientific community and how can it best be bridged? Um, well, I think you've really hit on an important thing there. The fact, like when you when you reference Hamlet, very few people would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, but never mind, you're just talking about what you're talking about because it's a huge cultural thing. It's a main part of literature. And even if you're not a professor of literature, which I don't expect everybody to be, you're going to know what Hamlet is and who Shakespeare is. And you're going to read some book at some point and maybe have an opinion on these things or even just an awareness of them. Whereas when it comes to science and maths, technology and engineering, all these kinds of subjects, people often say like, oh, I wouldn't know anything about that. That's too complicated. Never mind. I'm not going to talk about that. That Leave that to the scientists. And maybe they even say like, oh, sure, it's OK. Let the kids play like the science is for the kids. Let them play. Let them do some explosions. That sounds like fun. And then there's that sort of big gap between the kids and then people and then, and then people who actually work in science and researchers. And there's this whole gap of a huge portion of the population. Obviously, not everybody. But in general, you you often hear people saying, oh, that's that's not for me. But what I think is really important is that science is cultural. It's a huge part of our culture, just like Hamlet or music or history. I, I'm not a history professor, but I'm I'm still aware of history. And I, I would find a lot of it very interesting without being an ex expert in it. And that's important. That's part of our culture. But there is a there is a problem, isn't there? The problem is if yeah. you and I disagree about the origins of the 30 year war, well, the stakes are pretty low. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter to either of us uh, who's wrong and who's right. But if you and I disagree about the, uh, uh, the scientific response to the coronavirus, um, well, people might die. And and that yeah. seems to me part of the problem that that the stakes are quite high. It's it's I'm, I'm 
confident in her views on on many things. But I'm not going to go against um, uh, you know uh, an epidemiologist uh, when it comes to uh, COVID because you know that that inf- that knowledge has been hard won. So it's not a totally logical response, is it, to say I'm going to leave this to the scientists? And after all, that is what the scientists say to us a lot of the time as well. Yeah, so it's it's a tricky one, but I suppose obviously, like you say, when it comes to the coronavirus and dealing with really big issues like that, you do need to really know what you're talking about. And I suppose recently we we've noticed that a lot of people have, uh, from reading and listening to the experts on the TV and the radio and newspapers, they they feel they know a lot more about these things now, which is just great that you're sort of learning more. But it's important to also know your limits and within the scientific community as well just because somebody is a scientist like somebody who's an astronomer it doesn't mean they know the first thing about um biology and how uh, and 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 epidemiology or something Mm. like that so Mm. science isn't all scientists aren't all one and just because you're knowledgeable in something doesn't mean you're knowledgeable in all aspects of it people have very specific uh interests and specialities um, but I suppose apart from that, just for a moment, if I can kind of steer away from that slightly, um, I think it's really important to make people aware of science and how important it is in their everyday lives. Obviously, this becomes really relevant nowadays. But even apart from all that, science is something that we use every day. Technology, like your your smartphone, you use it all the time. It's a huge part of our culture. And even just making people more culturally aware of science as a part of our culture, combining it with art and history and music and literature. And it, it's a huge part of our culture. And it's just important that we recognize this and that we're willing to participate in it um, and be part of it and, and, and talk about it, even casually. Like we run events in bars, like Pint of Science and Astronomy on Tap. And it's really we're not expecting everybody who turns up for those events to leave saying, that's it, I'm going to go study science now, I'm going to go back to college and I'm going to become a scientist. It's just having an interesting discussion about something that's relevant to us all. And you don't have to be an expert. It's just to sort of be part of that conversation, be part of it, obviously knowing your limits as well. And like I say, even scientists knowing their limits. How, how in practice, do you think we could make ourselves more scientifically literate? People like me who are not particularly scientific, are there, uh, would you have any favourite books, for instance, that you might recommend that that are good starting points or, or indeed TV series or radio series or podcasts? Or, you know, what, what do you think is, if one wants to think about uh, precisely that thing that you just brought up, the, the kind of the, where science meets everyday life and, and the kind of understanding of both the science behind things, and, and I think something that makes a lot of people anxious these days is the ethics. You know, mm-hmm. and most of us feel we don't have the scientific knowledge to understand the kind of ethical conundrums that uh, AI throws up, that indeed data protection throws up, uh, or, or indeed viruses and how we how we respond. Is there kind of a, people that you particularly admire who are good at this? Oh, uh, oh, that's a tricky one. Let me think. <laughs> so, because um... it seems to me we don't have these great explainers. You know, in the in the seventies and the eighties, we had people like in the arts, we had people like Kenneth Clark, and we had in in the sciences and astronomy, your own field, we had people like Carl Sagan. Yeah. 
uh, we're a little bit there aren't these uh, kind of people today who, who who have made it their life's mission to to explain advances in science and we're, we're the worst off for it yeah I, I definitely see where you're coming from but there are some I mean mm. I'm going to start with the very stereotypical that everybody knows of somebody like Brian Cox Professor Brian Cox mm. who He's not an expert in all things, but he's very good at explaining it. And he clearly has an interest in it. And that comes across, you know, when yep. you're talking about it, that he's very, interested. He's very accessible. Yeah. And therefore, it sounds really interesting. And even, I suppose, slight predecessor, but somebody I would have grown up watching on TV is David Attenborough. And yep. I, I just, I, I find those sorts of programs really fascinating. But a really key part of it was that he was so genuinely interested, or at least as a very good actor, um, but seemed to be very genuinely interested in what he was talking about. You couldn't help be dragged along and be like, yeah, that is really interesting. Tell me more. Uh, you know, so that sort of passion really comes across in these cases. So, uh, yeah, people like that to watch on TV. There are so many different TV programs. Like, I really enjoy watching sci-fi as well. Um, which is, I think, a great door into science because then you can start thinking, wait, is that possible? And okay, okay, so this is the made up bit, fine. But then all these other things they're talking about are actually stuff that could be possible. And sci-fi historically is also a, a huge inspiration for science. Like if you look back at the old Star Treks from the 70s and 80s, the things they use now, apart from, you know, intergalactic space travel, that's the there's always one thing that you have to give them like, OK, that's the imagination. But then all the other things within that have to make sense. Like they're walking around tapping on screens, like just little glass screens. And that's way out there. And that's completely ridiculous. And we have that now. We have tablets. We have smartphones. Mm-hmm. We have touch screens. You know, so it's sort of inspiring and giving us something to work towards. You know, people think oh, there's this really cool thing that's that's impossible though. And it's like, wait, or is it possible? And then, and then we develop, we learn more about science and we develop that way. But all that science fiction, that was really all just a proxy for the Cold War, wasn't it? Uh, and that's a disappointing thing now. The Cold War is is over. We don't seem to have much a kind of interesting and accessible science fiction. It's all kind of just a rehash of of kind of 60s, 70s stuff, like more and yet more Star Trek or yet more Star Wars. But uh, I wonder, it's surprising to me that there isn't sci-fi around uh, kind of climate change, for instance. The big issues of today are not really being looked at. And it's strange to me because science fiction would be the obvious way to depict the destruction that we fear and, and, and bring it home to people. Yeah, well, like there there are some, I suppose, but they wouldn't be the main um the main aspect of the sci-fi. So are things like, um, what was it called? Sunshine or Sunlight, that sci-fi movie. Um, with Killian Murphy from a few years ago, I think it was Sunshine. And basically the sun is about to die. So, and that is causing a whole load of climate change on Earth, which I realize is not what you're talking about. <laughs> the sun dying is not gonna happen for about five years. Rather far off, yeah. So it's not something that's gonna cause effects to us here on Earth. It's, it's the things we're doing to the Earth that are causing problems. So it's, was it looking at it in a different way? Um, and then something like Interstellar, that sort of touches on, you know, there's this whole barren landscape, but again, it's not the main crux of the movie. And so they're basically the Earth isn't doing so well, so they're looking for somewhere else to have humanity exist. 
Um, so it's, it's, I suppose they use it more as a plot device in this is why we're looking to the stars rather than actually solving the problem. Uh, there are some that deal with it quite well, like, well, the difficulties of terraforming another planet uh, like Mars is not, it's not something that you can just say, okay, great, we'll just go terraform a planet and then it happens. That's, that's hard. That's really hard to do. Um, so like maybe like this earth that is ideal, maybe we should just try and fix that a bit. So yeah, I guess they're, they're probably- What a thought, what a novel thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, you, you've been, the last question really, you, you, you've been kind of studying this, this, this kind of whole area of science communication and thinking about it and, and trying to, trying to bridge, bridge the kind of miscommunication. But when you think about it, what, what, what do you think is the biggest misconception with the public? What do you think is stopping the public from being more scientific and using science more in their, in their everyday life? And, and I suppose as a result, being better citizens, because it, it is increasingly difficult to be uh, a good and authentic and active citizen if you, if you don't understand the kind of scientific forces that are shaping the world. What, what, what do you think we're missing? Oh, uh, put me on the spot now. Um, I suppose one of the biggest misconceptions is probably that science is hard. You know, like it's, it's not, it's, especially if you find it interesting. Yeah, it can be tricky, but I would find remembering all the dates of a specific like historical event and all the details, I would find that difficult because they're not going to stick in my head if I don't have context for them. So I think it's somewhat to do with maybe the way people learn science and the way it was taught. And that is improving. It's not perfect. We're a long way from perfect. It's also maybe issues with the, the way the school system is run, like you, everything is towards the leaving search to get the certain amount of points to do the college course you like uh, or you're interested in or you want to do. But a lot of that is memory and rote learning as opposed to really testing, understanding and grasping certain subjects. So personally, like people learn in different ways. Um, personally, I always find understanding something makes it way easier to uh, remember, I suppose, on, on one level. So, you know, saying like, oh, when you're cooking something, the top of the oven is hotter and the bottom of the oven is colder. And you just have to remember, top is hot, bottom is cold. And that's really easy to just get backwards if you're just trying to remember something like that. But if you know, well, heat rises. So that's why the top of the oven is hotter. Like the the top, of air, the air in the top of your room would be hotter. So therefore, it's easy to remember the top of the oven is hotter, just as something really simple. So science isn't hard. It's just maybe not presented in digestible ways for people. So like just presenting it differently, talking about it differently, teaching and learning science differently um, could be a big benefit. And, and like I say, it is something that we're getting to. It is changing. It is improving. Uh, and it doesn't always have to be in schools. We're not just talking about schools. We're doing like um, evening events for adults, uh, weekend things. You know, science isn't just for kids. It's for everybody. We're all part of society. And on that optimistic note, uh, we'll leave it. Thank you very much, Ronnie Flood, for, for talking to us today. Thank you, Tom. Really enjoyed it.